0: Welcome to Icons in the Making. I'm your host, Heather Stern, CMO at Lippincott, the creative consultancy behind some of the world's best brands. Join me as I sit down with the leaders of today's most influential brands. You'll hear stories of transformation and walk away with a new perspective on what it means to be an icon. This is Icons in the Making. Today I'm speaking with Jason Chua, an innovator, entrepreneur, and Silicon Valley insider. Jason and I first met in a 70,000 square foot, very cool industrial space in Brooklyn, where he was founding executive director of United Technologies Advanced Projects, Skunkworks organization where he and his team were rapidly piloting ambitious and disruptive products. When we reconnected earlier this year, Jason was on the other coast where he had co-founded Universal Hydrogen, one of the hottest startups out there with the goal of tackling the challenge of decarbonizing aviation. He's worked at Airbus's Innovation Center for Google's Project ARA at Stanford's D School as a lecturer, and he's only just hit his third decade on this planet. So very excited to have you here today. Welcome, Jason.
1: Thanks, Heather. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So your last three roles have been in aerospace. What drew you to aviation and can you fly a plane?
1: (laughs) That's a great question. I cannot fly a plane, although I have flown in many planes. And so one of the things that really drew me to aerospace, it's sort of by accident, right? I grew up not really having any particular interest in planes, although I was a very frequent user of them. And so I flew around when I was younger and also for work. And I got into the industry because one of my bosses at Google actually came from the aerospace world. And after he left Google and went back to aerospace, he asked me if I wanted to join him. And one thing that you find when you start interacting with people in the aerospace and aviation field is that it's a field of people that are just really, really, really passionate about flying, about planes, about how to build really complex things that prevent us from falling out of the sky and keep us really safe. And it's just kind of infectious, right? Anytime you're around people that are really passionate about the things that they're working on, it just lends itself to just a really cool culture.
0: So let's go back to Brooklyn then for a moment. You were at United Technologies in this advanced projects group. Tell me what that was like, what your remit was and the culture there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So at United Technologies Advanced Projects, we called it UTAP for short. It was really a place where UTC's business units could come together and build new things they otherwise couldn't and do that on a timescale that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. So the structure of United Technologies at the time was there were two sort of building systems companies. So Otis, the elevator company, and Carrier, the air conditioning and building systems company. And then on the aerospace side of things, Pratt & Whitney, which makes jet engines, and Collins Aerospace, which does basically everything else inside the airplane beside the and wings and engines and so they were run as pretty much four separate companies with four separate technology roadmaps and development timelines and processes and things like that and my goal was to have them come together and say hey actually You have a technology and you have a technology. And if you put those things together, what could you do that would be different and transformative for the industry? That included rebuilding a bunch of different processes from how we could staff the organization with talent, both internal talent and external talent, how we could incentivize them to take some risks and move faster. So the goal of the organization was to strip a lot of those layers away to say, hey, we're going to do something really fast. We're going to do something collaboratively. We're going to bring a lot of disciplines together. We're going to leverage the expertise that we have inside these incredible businesses, but we're also going to augment it with new perspectives that come from outside the company and do it in a way that allowed us to bridge these two worlds together and get something out the door really quickly.
0: What are you most proud of about your time there and the work that you did?
1: I'm most proud of the fact that we were able to build an organization, build all new processes, set really ambitious goals, achieve those goals, and do it in a way that did not leave people feeling like they were overworked overstressed undersupported we actually had the highest culture scores and sort of success scores of the entire organization in my team and this is admits you know crazy deadlines <laughs> super aggressive goals and so I'm, I'm really proud that we were able to bring everyone together in a way that felt really supportive and built I think cross business unit collaboration and community
0: which is so hard what do you think of all the things were among the most? Critical to actually achieve the kind of culture that you wanted to build?
1: I think everything comes down to empathy, right? So really trying to be there for people because I think it's it's one thing to ask a lot of people and ask them to produce some really incredible advances in technology or engineering in a very short amount of time. I think that's exciting for a lot of people, but you can only do that for so long before you start to feel burned out, overworked, stressed. And so It's about that balance of how do you get people energized by a really ambitious goal, but also make sure that you're saying, okay, I know this is really hard. I I know that what you're doing is really challenging. And I want you to be comfortable coming to me and saying, hey, I need some more support.
0: So we're actually a time when so many organizations have remote workers, hybrid workers, or in some cases, just completely giving up their space. There was something I would say, really inspiring about being in that space that I referred to earlier in Dumbo and being confronted with the history of the organization, but as well, what it was that you were building and doing. How important is the space and having a space where it almost personifies what you're trying to do and achieve?
1: I think it's incredibly important. I think people are influenced by their surroundings in ways that they might not expect, And, you know, you can talk to like an engineer that's like, I'm very rational. I can work from anywhere. It doesn't matter as long as you give me a computer and, you know, (laughs) and the right CAD software, right? But I think being in a space where you feel free to walk up to other people, have conversations, have a whiteboard or some other surface to sketch out things and don't feel overly constrained in your physical environment, I think that also allows you to feel less constrained in your mental environment and creative environment as well. And so with a startup I co-founded, right, we ended up setting up shop in some hangars right on the runway of an airport. And I think being in that large space with huge ceilings, everything was very open plan. But I think more importantly, you would open up the hangar doors and you would see planes taking off every you know, 10, 15 minutes. I think that sort of connection to, hey, we're going to build something and eventually it's going to take off from these runways. I think that's really powerful and it just keeps people focused on where are we headed, right?
0: So before you left United Technologies, you were involved with thinking through the strategic goals and journey of United Technologies and Raytheon coming together. Mm-hmm. Two huge organizations, uh, storied backgrounds and histories and cultures and and now a merger of equals. What was that like? What did you learn?
1: Yeah, it was an incredibly interesting experience, right? You have two incredibly strong historic companies coming together. And what I found is that the companies were more alike than they were different. So, you know, on a service level, you talk to different leaders on both sides, and they're like, Yeah, no, we do things very differently. And you know, we have this program and it's called this, and it's very unique to us. <laughs> and then you discover actually, you know, they're kind of very similar, right? And it's just about the vocabulary that people use and how people refer to different things and different naming conventions and stuff like that. But there's actually a good amount of overlap in how people thought about the development process, the engineering process, and how to think through technology. And so it was kind of a puzzle. of how do you fit these things together in a way that brings people along with you and doesn't feel like you're sort of supplanting something that they're used to and they have a lot of pride in with something new, that especially something new that comes from the other company, right? Yeah. Ideally, you want to do something that feels equally fresh and comfortable for both sides.
0: So March 2020, and you and some colleagues went to dinner and started talking about forming this new company and Mm -hmm. I just would love to zoom in on the dinner and what you guys talked about.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a really fun dinner. And so Mm -hmm. there are four co-founders and we'd all wanted to do something to address some sort of big problem in the industry. And the problem that we ended up focusing on was decarbonization of aviation. It's one of the last industries to have a credible plan towards zero carbon emissions and we tried to push the envelope on decarbonization one of the things i that i launched at utap was a hybrid electric flight project and that had a lot of potential but you know a lot of potential in that context was 25 to 30% emissions reductions right and we need to do a lot better than that if we're going to get to you know zero carbon right where does the other 70% come from yeah. right And so, you know, we sat down, we're talking about different ways we could do it. Hydrogen was something that had bubbled up as maybe something we might want to take a look at. And we had some interesting thoughts on how to approach that, how to tackle some of the biggest challenges that had been preventing the, the mass adoption of hydrogen as an aviation fuel. And so we sat down, had several bottles of wine and, you know, around the last bottle of wine, we were like, okay, like, do we want to, we want to do this. And we made the decision at the end of dinner. Yeah. Let's, let's go ahead. Let's try it. Let's do this. And then, you know, I think it was like two days later, the entire city shut down and we were all stuck at home. Wow. And that's where we had this realization, like, oh, we're going to do this for the next two weeks or maybe a month.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Turns out we had a lot more time at home to think about this and work on this. And so did all the people that we pulled into it, which actually lent itself to a lot of good heads down focusing on things as sort of a silver lining. And, you know, after a few months, we were like, Hey, actually, you know what, this could be a real thing. Like, maybe we should continue this. And so that's what we've been doing ever since.
0: So you wake up the next morning, you're like, did we just agree that we were going to completely revolutionize an industry and started it ourselves? So when the company started, you wore three hats, co-founder, chief strategy officer, chief product officer. What were your days like? Where were you focused? Did you ever sleep?
1: Yeah, it was actually more hats than that, right? Because at a startup, (laughs) there's unlimited amounts of hats that somebody can wear. And so we were starting this company in a pretty distributed way. Everyone was sort of in a different state and certainly, you know, different city. And so that gave us a good amount of flexibility in when we worked and when we didn't work. And, you know, there was endless amounts of things to get done, right? And so that was kind of nice. I did everything except for doing hardcore engineering. (laughs) So I set up our IT system. I set up a recruiting system. I set up our financial model. I built our pitch deck. Our CEO was off raising money. Our CTO was off trying to like do real hardcore engineering. And our other co-founder was making sure that we had like the right corporate formation documents and contract templates and stuff like that, right? So I sort of picked up the slack everywhere else and to make sure that we had everything in place, we needed at a bare minimum to be a functional company.
0: Of all of those hats, what well, was harder than you would have ever imagined? I
1: mean, I probably should have predicted this, but recruiting is really, really tough yeah. because people are the lifeblood of an organization. And so you want to make sure you get the right people and having to do that in a remote environment to make sure that you really, truly understand who it is that you're inviting to be a part of the team, and then also convincing them that they should join your company, that was really kind of tough because it's so important, but also so difficult, but also incredibly time-sensitive.
0: You know, in a way, another silver lining could have been that during this period of time, people have started to question how they spend their days and what they spend their days trying to solve or not,
1: Yeah, I think the pandemic brought a lot of things into focus for a lot of people. The importance of being able to travel and connect with other people and sort of how you feel and what happens when you all of a sudden can't do that, but also the power of nature, right? (laughs) They're real forces and they can drastically affect how we live our life, right? And I think for a lot of people, the pause in travel during the pandemic created a time where people could reflect on, well, why why am I traveling? And just to be a bit more conscious about how they approached air travel in particular, which I think there was a growing awareness of the carbon footprint challenge that aviation produced.
0: So a common analogy that you and the team have used as it relates to what you're trying to build is wanting to do for clean fuel, what Nespresso did for coffee. Unpack that for me.
1: (laughs) Sure. So the biggest challenge For hydrogen being adopted at mass scale, for aviation, this isn't a great way to get it around the country or around the world. Toyota has been selling hydrogen-powered cars for quite a while, but you can only get them in California if you're in the US because you can't get hydrogen anywhere else, right? You can't fill up your car. And so there's a distribution challenge. And so the oil and gas industry has had several decades and several billion dollars to build out basically ubiquitous infrastructure. You can get jet fuel at any airport, you can get gas for your car, basically any street corner. And to replicate that for hydrogen was going to take a really long time and a huge amount of money. This is decades and trillions of dollars. We don't have decades or trillions of dollars in order to solve some of these emissions challenges that we have. And so how do we solve that? We can make hydrogen-powered planes Hydrogen powered planes have existed since the 1950s. So that's not the problem. The problem is how do you get hydrogen to the airport so you can actually fuel these things up? One of the insights that we had early on was the idea of these modular hydrogen pods or capsules that you could load on aircraft using existing cargo loading equipment, and that you could ship around the world using one of the most efficient and ubiquitous forms of transportation and distribution that we've invented, which is the intermodal freight network. And so that sort of became the core nugget of how we were going to solve this massive challenge for the distribution of hydrogen. And the more and more we thought about it, the more we sort of realized that this actually kind of resembled the Nespresso model, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously we're doing a lot of work, late night work, and a lot of work was powered by Nespresso. And we're like, well, it's kind of similar to that. You have these specially designed capsules that you fill up with this fuel. (laughs) You put it in a box and you ship it around in trucks and trains and boats and you get it to wherever you need to get it to and you plug it into your coffee maker and there you go, you have espresso. So in our analogy, the retrofitted aircraft is the coffee maker and our hydrogen modules are the Nespresso pod. And so the way Nespresso works is that it actually doesn't grow coffee or produce coffee. It actually works with Coffee growers to package their their coffee in the capsules. And similarly, the plan for Universe Hydrogen is to use hydrogen production that's being done by third parties, put them in these capsules, ship them around the world, and plug them into to airplanes.
0: It's a brilliant analogy. And you know, I'm sure one that in talking to The media and investors and recruit just kind of taking these complex ideas and, and simplifying them can be really important. What do you think has attributed to the success that you've been having?
1: Well, I think I have to give a lot of credit to, especially younger generations. That have become increasingly vocal and voted with their wallets to say, hey, actually, it's not cool to continue to pollute. You got to change. You got to make some real substantive changes in the way the world operates in order for us to be consumers again. And so I think that shift in sentiment by consumers has really led a lot of airlines to rethink okay, like we're kind of in a crunch right now and no one's flying. What are we going to do in, in order to get people back? And one of the things they decided that was important was the idea of investing in some carbon abating technologies, whether that's sucking carbon out of the sky or investing in fuels that are less polluting, like Mm -hmm. hydrogen. And so I think that really created a movement that allowed us to gain some traction with some airlines and investors, of course. And I think that's what's going to help propel the industry forward.
0: There's so much happening in so many industries that are ripe for disruption, and the role that technology is playing and turning on its head what's possible, is there a technology or a trend or an innovation that's been really exciting for you to see take shape?
1: I think that you hit the nail right on the head, right? There are so many interesting opportunities out there to explore. And I think oftentimes it comes down to the team and having a team that is full of diverse perspectives, but where people are just really passionate about trying to do something new. And so I'm particularly bullish on things that do not just live in the digital world, but also have some physical components to it and, and also some environmental sensing components to it as well. Because I think that allows you to have that sort of feedback loop of you know people and physical things, but then sensing what they're doing and then also being able to react and sort of create an experience that is all of that. And I think you just get this really interesting confluence of the sort of activations, right? Both on the sensor and digital side of things, but also on the human scale, right? I think the way that people interact with objects and spaces is just really, it truly is an activation, right? And it creates something there that isn't there without people.
0: I love the fact that you've started with this idea that the most potentially meaningful innovations will come from things that are not just digital or intangible, but you know the physical as well. And what is the connection point there? And I think we've really recognized the importance of, and yes, through digital, we've been able to do things that we could never have imagined while we were in lockdown for all this time, but it's never going to really replace lots of other experiences. So you have a master's degree in product design and mechanical engineering from Stanford. Not bad and you're now pursuing an MBA at Northwestern, which is my alma mater. Why get an MBA now? You've had so much amazing experiences. What are you looking to gain from it and, and how's it going?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been an incredible experience. And so if you sort of take, take a step back and take a look at the arc of my educational and career journey, it's about understanding people, understanding what their needs are, understanding how to actually create experiences, products, services that fulfill some of those needs, and then actually figuring out how to actually get those out into the real world in a sustainable way. So degrees in design, engineering, and now business, right? I think those are the three things that personally, I think are sort of the core aspects of product development. And I want to make sure that I not only can I build something that has a good why behind it, I know how to build it. And I also know how to make sure that it's something that can support itself so it can actually have longer lasting impact.
0: It's super exciting and I really love what Northwestern has been doing with some of the programming, the Ford Center for Design and the McCormick School of Engineering and Kellogg coming together and creating these hybrid programs as well. So you'll have the the trifecta, which will be pretty amazing.
1: I strongly believe that the future is interdisciplinary, right? I think it's, you can no longer say, hey, I only do engineering and I'm going to only hang out with engineers and it's about engineering and technology. I think all of the major advances in society are going to come from an architect and an anthropologist and a psychologist talking with a plutonium engineer or something, right? But that's where I think the intersection of different disciplines is where creativity, I think, is born from.
0: So part of what we're doing with the types of people that we're interviewing on this podcast is the idea of Building something that's really meaningful, building something that can become iconic, and the people that are behind it to get it to that point. Who is an icon for you or what is an icon for you?
1: So I will say that what Stanford's done with the D School, and you know, David Kelly was, you know, sort of the visionary behind all of this, but a lot of other people have contributed along the way to actually build a place where these disciplines can come together and supporting it with a framework that allows people to sort of be a part of the process and more of a level playing field, and then take that back to the respective disciplines and sort of infect other people (laughs) with this mindset. I think that's been really kind of incredible. And, you know, obviously I'm incredibly biased, right? Like that's where my training is, right? and I've lectured there and all that stuff. I think everything sort of comes back to are you able to really, truly listen to people, not just the people that you collaborate with or the people that you're trying to design for, but just everyone in general? And how do you incorporate that into the things that you do? Because I think if we can create a world where people are more open and receptive and, and conscious of how what they do can affect and create impact for other people, I think we're going to end up in a better place.
0: What you've done thus far is pretty amazing and just excited to see where you're going to go next.
1: Thanks, Heather. I'm sure I'll cross paths again, you know, maybe in some warehouse on the West coast next time.
0: Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, share with your colleagues and friends and subscribe on Spotify, Apple podcasts, or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling really generous, leave us a five-star rating. Thanks. And I'll see you next time.